0: Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis, and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. welcome to Hither Came Conan. My name is Steven, and I don't know about you, but I am in the mood to talk about Conan. You know, Conan the Barbarian, the Destroyer, the Cimmerian, black-haired, sullen-eyed, sword in hand, a thief, a reaver, a slayer. Yeah, that guy. Good Lord, I hope you didn't think that this was a Conan O'Brien podcast. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Though, admit it, Hither Came Conan would be a pretty badass name for a Conan O'Brien podcast. Am I right? I think I'm right. And uh, yeah, that doesn't happen all that often. Anyway, today we're looking at Conan the Barbarian, issue number three from Marvel Comics. It had a cover date of February 1971, but it hit the stands in November of 1970. The issue sold for just 15 cents, and the title of the story is The Twilight of The Grim Gray God. It was written by Roy Thomas, penciled and colored by Barry Windsor Smith, inks by Sal Busema, and the letters by Sam Rosen. Enough talk! Our story opens as night has settled across the land, and Conan finds himself in Hyperborea. Quote, That rude, fierce land, which once was first among Hyborian kingdoms, but now is sunken back into savagery and barbarism. End quote. Conan is on his knees, the starry sky above him and the mountains behind. A pair of iron manacles adorn the Cimmerian’s wrists, and a great thick chain connects them both. Conan, working only with what he can find, which are rocks, attempts in vain to free himself from the chains when he hears a voice in the dark. He soon discovers the source. An old man clad in armor and bearing a battered yet gleaming sword stands on a hilltop, looking out over the pastoral and rocky land around him. The old man knows Conan by name, but Conan, in return, does not know the old man. The old gray man tells Conan that war is coming. War between Hyperborea and Brithunia. That hostilities have already begun along the border. Now, Conan is all kinds of confused. Who is this old man? How does he know Conan? How does he know that a war is brewing along the border When the border is leagues away. Well, Conan's confusion naturally leads to anger, and he demands that the old man tell him what the F is going on. And if he doesn't, well, Conan can always do something rather horrible to the old man with the chains that still connect his wrists. The old man doesn't take too kindly to Conan's threat and lifts his sword high above his head, shouting out to Conan to look up into the sky, and then he will know who it is he's speaking to. Suddenly, from out of the night-shrouded clouds come twelve winged horses, each bearing a woman, all with hair of gold. Like their mother, the youngest one in curls. These ladies are the choosers of the slain, and as the old man explains, every living being has an appointment with death, even the gods. Then, following the show and the proclamation, he tells Conan to beat it. Why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? Conan is understandably freaked out, and so, yeah, he takes off. It's as Conan flees that he turns to take one last look back at the old man, only to discover that the man has turned into a giant with his head in the clouds and that he's turned gray, as if with vast age. He's, he's a gray, a gray god. god! Later, Conan comes across a Brethunian on horseback and learns that, yeah, war is a brewing and a bubblin' between Hyperborea and Brethunia. Conan reveals that he had been held captive by the Hyperboreans, hence the chains, and that he recently escaped their slave pens. Furthermore, knowing now that this whole war thing that the old man told him about is true, he insists that the Brethunian take Conan with him because, as the Cimmerian puts it, I have many Hyperboreans to kill. I can't really do a good Schwarzenegger impersonation, so I didn't even try. Not that he really sounds like that. I'm just saying, the Brithunian, whose name is Dunlag, takes Conan back to his camp where they meet Even, who is Dunlag's pretty special friend, if you know what I mean. Even is some sort of sage who can see the future in her dreams, and she has seen the death of Dunlag, which, you know, causes her a bit of distress, and she begs him to run away with her. Dunlag, however, is a loyal man of Brithunia and will not abandon his people. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the woods, Brethunian cavalry commander Malachi secretly meets with the wife of Tomar, king of the Hyperboreans. Cormlata, for that's her name, wants Malachi to betray Brian, the king of Brithunia. And Malachi, well, the lady makes him feel all squishy in some places and not at all squishy in others. So yeah, he agrees to betray the king, mainly because he wants to get with Cormlada, You know, if that wasn't at all clear by all the squishy, not squishy stuff. Back in the Brethunian camp, even gives Dunlag a gift to keep him safe during the upcoming war. It's a shirt and hood made of golden chain mail that is also enchanted, and as long as he keeps it on, he should stay well protected during all of the fighting. Foreshadowing Then, as Conan and Dunlog take off, leaving even behind, she suddenly sees a vision of the Grey God Conan met earlier. We then meet Tomar, King of the Hyperboreans, and he is just one great big jerk. He's pacing about his tent back at the Hyperborean war camp, and he's screaming the name of his wife, Cormlada, when she suddenly arrives in his tent, having just now returned from the mission that he sent her on. But before she can tell him how it went, actually it's as she's about to tell him, he grabs her by the wrist and in a rage demands that she tell him how it went, threatening to break her arm if she doesn't spill her guts already. That's my loving man. Well, she tells her loving man that Malachi, the Brethunian, has agreed to participate in their plan. And Tomar is so happy that he shoves his lady love to the ground and commands her to return to her knitting. But fear not for Cormlada. For it is as Tomar leaves his tent that she vows, when the battle is done, to put a dagger in her husband and then set up Malachi as her puppet king. The next morning on the eve of battle, Conan's hanging with the Brethunian army when he meets Malachi, chief of all the king's horsemen. He has come to give Conan a weapon for the coming fight, but Conan refuses. He only asks that Malachi take a great big battle axe and use it to split his chains apart so that he can kill the Hyperboreans with the very chains that they had put him in. Ah, Conan, so poetic. Brutal, yeah. Dark as hell, you bet. But poetic, just the same. Soon the battle begins, and Conan, true to his word, kills a great big bunch of Hyperboreans using only his fists and the chain. He even finds the one guy he was looking for specifically the yellow-haired Hyperborean who spent just a little more time than the others making Conan feel pain when he was their captive. Conan makes quick work of the yellow-haired Hyperborean before Dunlag points out that Malachi and his horsemen have yet to join the fight. In fact, they're just hanging back. They're up there on a hill just watching. So Dunlag sends Conan to Malachi with a message. Re the battle. Get in there already. Conan does as he is bid, only to learn that Malachi will join the battle when he's damn good and ready. Conan goes back to tell Dunlag about Malachi, and Dunlag understands immediately that the chief of the horsemen has betrayed them. And so, in his frustration, Dunlag removes the enchanted shirt and hood of golden mail, only to be struck with a knife within seconds. Dunlag dies there on the battlefield. Conan, enraged, leads the Brethunian foot soldiers to victory before he hunts down and kills Malachi. REVENGE! Meanwhile, the Hyperborean king, Tomar, attacks the Brethunian king, Brian, in his tent. The two fight, which takes them out of the tent where they slay each other as the gray god towering above them watches silently. With both kings now dead, The Grey God summons the choosers of the slain, who fly down from the heavens astride their winged horses and collect the souls of the newly deceased. Conan, watching with mouth agape, suddenly realizes that the Grey God is Bori, the northern god of war, who, once the deed is done, leaves our plane of existence, never to return. For even the gods can die. And that's how the story ends. Enough talk! So... Before we really get into things, I should make mention, as it states there on the splash page, that this story was freely adapted from the Robert E. Howard story, The Gray God Passes. I want to give you a little bit of information about that because it's actually not a Conan story and it's not one that I've read. It was originally a short story called Spears of Clontarf, which was based around a historical battle or war or something in Ireland or whatnot. I I don't, I don't quite remember. But he submitted it to Soldier of Fortune magazine, and they rejected it. So he took it, and he completely rewrote it, adding fantasy elements to it, and he called it The Grey God Passes. He submitted that to Weird Tales magazine, and that was rejected. It was eventually published under the title... The Twilight of the Grey Gods in 1962, after Howard had passed away. And I think The Twilight of the Grey Gods is the original working title when he started to rewrite it. Uh, now, according to Wikipedia, the core of the story is the end of the era of gods and warrior kings. With the victory of Christian King Brian over the enslaving Vikings at the cost of their own lives, Ireland is freed from bondage and increasingly left in the hands of former slaves. Odin himself makes an impressive and doomful appearance, actively aiding and abetting this changing of the guard. So yeah, basically, Roy Thomas took that story, rewrote it, added Conan to the mix, and boom, he made a uh, freaking comic book out of it. And what we have here ultimately is that the the old gray god Bori, he would be Odin, and then the choosers of the slain would be the Valkyrie. Now, you can, there is a collection a, a collection of Robert E. Howard stories that are not just his Conan stories that that you can buy and you can read this story. I didn't do that because it's, even on the Kindle, it was like $15, $16. And I'm not paying that just to read one story. Eventually, I might, once I'm done finally reading all of his Conan stories, I might reach out there and look for other stuff like his Cole and his Sol- Solomon Kane, is that right? I don't know. He's got a lot of characters. But that's what this story is based on. Now, looking at the art, I will mention that this was colored by Barry Windsor Smith, as well as being penciled by him. And I find that interesting because by the time we hit my most favorite single comic issue in the world, X-Men number 205 from 86, I think it was, Barry Windsor Smith did all he he did everything he he well, he didn't write it he he helped plot it but he did the pencils, he did the inks and he did the colors and he has kind of a, a fairly unique coloring style that works hand in hand with his pencils that makes everything just it, it all works it all just comes together very nicely and you don't see a lot of that here of course, this is a time when you just really didn't have a lot of option when it came to colors in a comic. I don't know that you had that much more in '86, but by '86, I'm sure he had figured out a bunch of uh, various things that he could do to to really make the colors pop. Because if you look at X Men number two hundred five, it is it, it looks like it might even be digitally colored. It's not, but he has this ability to to use colors in such a way that it really just makes everything kind of pop off of the page and the the coloring is it almost is part of the story it's it's done really well and just like with issue 2 and issue 1 we it, it, he he is still sliding into his particular unique style that he eventually gets to it's a little bit you know a little bit more in this one especially when you look at the choosers of the slain it's still Not quite Barry Windsor Smith, but we're getting there. We're getting closer and closer with each issue, and I I find that just really fun to watch. There is one uh, panel in here, page number seven. It's the second to the last panel. It's the first time we see the king of the Hyperboreans, King Tomar, and he's screaming out, because he obviously has issues. He's dressed like Hager the Horrible. I don't know if that was done on purpose uh cuz he's wearing a helmet with horns sticking out of the side and uh like a furry onesie with these uh metal disks on the front he looks like hager the horrible i just find that very funny but this this panel of him he, his hand is reaching out and he's got these short cropped off cracked very uneven fingernails and i i find that very very interesting or very neat i like it i like I like it when artists do that kind of stuff, but it really does kind of stand out among everything else when, you know, it's like he really took a lot of time with that one panel, but couldn't take a lot of time with some others. But he's got a lot of good stuff in here. Again, his his skill is progressing. He seems to be adding a lot more detail to a lot of these panels than than what he had before. And uh, good lord, looking at old Tomar, I guarantee you that he's supposed to be. Hagar the Horrible. He's gotta be. He, you know, he's got the beard and everything. Well, he's got a five o'clock shadow, anyways. When we get to Dunlag and his golden male, he looks fairly ridiculous. (laughs) He looks like he's just wearing a very strange-looking golden hoodie amongst all of these medieval type warriors, these, you know, these guys with helmets and shields and swords and whatnot. And he looks pretty silly because he's got the hood up over his head and yeah, they've drawn the little circles in there to to represent the fact that it's chainmail, but it it he, it just looks like he's wearing a sweatshirt, a hoodie sweatshirt. That's what it looks like. I think it's funny. I don't know that there's a lot more that I want to say about this. Um the story was fine. I like I I really like that Conan refused to use any weapons and is going to fight the Hyperboreans using only his fists and the chain that's coming out off of one of the the manacles. Cause basically he had Malachi chop the chain where it connected to the manacle on his left wrist. So there's no more chain hanging off his left wrist. He's just got the long chain now hanging off off of his uh, right wrist. And that's what he uses to pummel these Hyperborean warriors to death. And, I think it's a good way to show that Conan is a badass. And we have to remember that he's fairly young at this point. If Roy Thomas is following a a, a timeline, which I'm fairly certain he is, I'm, I'm pretty sure I read that during the Roy Thomas run, he's not jumping back and forth in time. He He starts at a certain point in Conan's history and then moves forward. And because we haven't gotten Tower of the Elephant yet, and we haven't gotten the frost giant's daughter yet two stories that will be coming up we know based on the various different historical timelines fictional historical timelines of conan and his stories that that are out there that at this point the 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 conan depending on all right so <laughs> i'll get into this a lot more in the next episode especially since i don't have a lot of the information in front of me but i fell down this rabbit hole When it came to Conan's chronology, I I talked about this in the second episode, I don't remember, but Robert E. Howard never put anything out there that said, all right, this is how old Conan was during his first adventure. This is uh, how old he is during Phoenix of the Sword. And this is the order, even though I wrote the stories and published the stories out of chronological order when it comes to the life of Conan. Here's the order that, I th- that, that that they really should fall in. He, he never did anything like that. There was a time where a, a couple of fans, big Conan fans at the time when, when Robert E. Howard was still alive, they put together a timeline, and they sent it to Robert E. Howard. And at the time that that was put together, there well, currently there's kind of a big controversy or controversy, as the British would say. Controversy. In regard to which timeline, because there have been multiple timelines published. Which timeline is the actual timeline? And we'll never know because Robert E. Howard is dead. But in one timeline, it shows that Conan's earliest adventure, as far as what Robert E. Howard wrote from the Robert E. Howard stories, Conan's earliest adventure is the Frost Giant's daughter. In other timelines, his earliest adventure from the Robert E. Howard stories was the Tower of the Elephant. And I fall into the Frost Giants Daughter Camp, and it sounds like Robert E. Howard may have as well, because these two fans back in the day, they wrote Robert E. Howard this letter and they said, hey, I know you've never published a a timeline here, but this is how we see everything. You know, this is how we would sort your currently published stories into a, a chronological timeline. and." He wrote back to them and said that that was pretty good. That's kind of what he was thinking. But he had always had it in his head that when Conan left Samiria, he first went north. And north of Samaria is Asgard and Vanir. And uh, that's when he would have fought with the Asgardians against the Vanir, encountered the Frost Giant's daughter and all that. But some timelines have him going south first, and the events of Tower of the Elephant happened to him in the south, and then he goes north and then goes back south again, and I, I don't I don't buy into that timeline. Now, Roy Thomas, he does, because the very next comic that we're going to get, issue number four, is the Tower of the Elephant, and the Frost Giant's daughter doesn't happen until issue 11, 14, somewhere around there. And Roy Thomas is following Conan's life chronologically. So as far as Roy Thomas is concerned, the Frost Giant's daughter happened after the Tower of the Elephant. But that was the there there was a timeline published at this point by the guy who was in charge of editing the various Robert E. Howard. They trying to make this as succinct succinct. Woo, so stinky. Succinct as possible without uh, you know, I'm trying not to Spend too much time on this, and I'm 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 not very good at that. But after Robert E. Howard's death, um, I don't know which publishing company got his stories, but they were going to start publishing them in collected editions. At the same time, they were going to be publishing their own Conan stories, what they call the the pastiche novels. And they they again, I want to talk about this more in detail later because uh, again, I don't have the information in front of me. But the guy who was in charge of editing all that and writing some of the stories he put this timeline together and he made Tower of the Elephant fall before the Frost Giant's Daughter. Now a lot of people think that the reasoning behind that is because in the Frost Giant's Daughter there is what could have possibly been a a rape. We talked about that in the Frost Giant's Daughter, we'll talk about it again when we get to that issue during the Marvel run and if you use the Frost Giant's Daughter as the first adventure, they didn't want Conan's first adventure in these published novels to be Conan uh, hunting down a woman that he is probably going to rape. That's the theory. And so that's why they stuck it later in, in, in the books. But I find it interesting that the, the timeline that Roy Thomas is following has Tower of the Elephant come before the Frost Giant's Daughter because that's what that's the timeline that was accepted at the time. But then when Dark Horse... Got the series when Dark Horse got the license, they published again. They going chronologically throughout Conan's life. They did Frost Giant's Daughter first, and then eventually got to Tower of the Elephant. So they were following the other timeline, which is the one that I kind of fall into. Now, why, why, why did I start that? Why, why was I even talking about that? What was the point there? Lost well, my train of thought here. Oh yeah, I, I w- <laughs> Basically, what I'm trying to say here is that this Conan who is fighting in this war. Between two nations, neither one of which is his own, but he's fighting simply because one of them, the Hyperboreans, captured him before this issue started and enslaved him and whipped him and beat him. And and he escaped and he wants some revenge, so he's fighting with the Brithunians against the Hyperboreans. He's killing a crap ton of Hyperboreans using just his fists and a chain this dude's like 17 years old, 16, 17, 18 years old. That's that's about how old he is at this point. He uh, is often, from what little I've read so far, he is described in these earlier adventures as looking older than he really is. But he's he's like, uh, I think he might have left Samaria when he was 15, 16 years old. I, I don't know. I, I'll have to look that up. If you know, let me know what age he is supposed to be at this point, but I feel like it's 16, 17, 18 years old, somewhere around there. I know he's he's fairly young. He's a teenager at this point. And I find that even more interesting because if he's got these kinds of savage skills at this point, imagine what he's going to be like when he is the freaking king of Aquilonia. Pretty cool stuff. The last thing I want to talk about with this is that it wasn't clear to me the first time through this that Bori, or Odin, died at the end of this issue. And in essence, that's what happened. The very end, when Conan realizes that the old gray man is Bori, the northern war god, he says, I see it now. He is Bori. Bori, the northern war god, sending his wild women to gather lost souls for one last time, for even the gods must die when their altars crumble and their worshipers are all fallen. And so we see Bori just kind of drifting off into the distance, you know, fading away. And I'm curious about this this line here where he says that even the gods must die when their altars crumble and their worshipers are all fallen. So this is happening after this, this, I guess, the final battle in this war between Hyperborea and Brithunia. And I'm fairly certain that it's the Brethunians that worship Bori. And so, what are they trying to say here? Are they saying that all of the Brethunian people who believed and worshipped, believed in and worshipped Bori, did they die during this war, or are there just so few left at this point following this last battle? So few people left who believe in and worship Bori that. It's not enough to sustain him, so he has to fade away and and ultimately die. I don't know. I would love to hear what you think about it, but but I I don't know. It's I, there's really no indication of how many may have died. I mean, seriously, at the end here, all we see that's left are there's there's uh, even and Cormlada. They're still alive. There seems to be a guy holding a a spear that's walking amongst the dead and you know, uh, and a second guy. And then of course, Conan goes after Malachi and kills him. So I don't think everybody died, but I think it was, it was a lot of people. I think a lot of people died in this war and with the two Kings, I guess dying, that maybe must have something to, to do with it as well. But yeah, this was almost less of a Conan story and more of a Hyperborean, Brithunian gods of the North type story. All right. Before we get into what we're going to talk about next week, how about we do some listeners' feedback? All right, I got a couple of pieces of feedback again this week. Uh, the first one is an email from Billy D. Billy D is the host of The Brave and the Bob, as well as a number of other podcasts. You can find all those at magazinesandmonsters.com. Uh, I was on one of his episodes uh, not too long ago with my Superman Super Show co-host, Ed Moore. But Billy writes, Hey, Steven, just burned through the first five episodes of your new Conan show. I'm having a blast listening in. Just a couple of thoughts. I'm looking forward to you talking about the black and white magazines. The color comic by Marvel was great, but I personally feel the magazine captured more of what that character is all about even if just from a visual standpoint. Also, I'm glad you included Fongor slash Lynn Carter in the history segment. I hope you eventually talk about those stories Marvel put out as well. Creatures on the loose, he puts in parentheses. Uh, I read a good bit of the Dark Horse material as well and really enjoyed it. I think their coal was even better, though. Keep it going as the shows are a welcomed addition to the podcasting realm. Very enjoyable. Billy D. Well, Billy D. Thank you so much for that email. Uh, let me just address a few points in here. So the the black and white magazines. Yes, I will be talking about those, but it won't be until we get to that point in the publishing history. And I, I want to say they didn't start putting those out until 74, maybe, I don't know. I I will look that up here in the next couple of weeks so I can add that to my calendar so I can make sure that I I, I get into those. Um, I know it doesn't happen at least until at, after issue 14, which I'm pretty sure is the issue that Frost Giant's Daughter is in because they then end up publishing that story in one of the black and white magazines. And I, you know, I have to agree with you The the few magazine stories, Savage sort of Conan that I've read, they do for me feel more like Conan. And I think a lot of that has to do with not only the the, the fact that it's black and white, because let's be honest here. These first few stories so far are a lot of fun, but they feel like they were made in the 70s. And the coloring doesn't do anything to help change that feeling for me in any way. It's when I read a Conan story, a Robert E. Howard Conan story, I'm not picturing how it looks here in these Marvel books. Now, what I do picture is John Buscema. And that's because when I first started reading Conan comics and I didn't read many, but it was in the 80s and it was when John Buscema was on the book and there's a lot of that black and white stuff in the magazines John Buscema was a big part of that as well and they they did a really good job of 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 highlighting other artists that that fit this genre a lot more when it came to those black and white stories i think they could they could uh, get away with that and they could get away with a lot more because it wasn't a comic book format it was a magazine format so they didn't have to adhere by the comics code authority now That doesn't mean there's blood and boobs all over the place, but they are a little bit darker than the ones in the main Marvel Conan the Barbarian book. And the black and white only, it only helps to enhance the mood of those stories. So I get what you're saying there. Um, I read some of the Dark Horse stuff as well. I remember when those Dark Horse books started coming out, I was really excited and it was on my pull list. But After having picked up a bunch of collections recently and starting to go through those, it doesn't look like I made it very far before I stopped reading. And it could be because that's when I had kind of just fell out of reading comics altogether. Now, in regard to the Gore Lynn Carter part of this email and how some of those stories uh, saw print in Marvel, Creatures on the Loose, I'll look into that. If I can if I can get copies of it, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll go ahead and talk about some of those here on the show. But yeah, thanks for writing in, Billy. I really appreciate it. It's been really great ever since I started talking about the single issues. You know, once I put out episode number four or five, when I talked about Conan the Barbarian issue one, I've had feedback to talk about on each subsequent podcast. But I've got one more for this one, so don't go anywhere. This one comes from Ed Moore from over at the forum. That's forum.justanotherfanboy.com. He says, in those first handful of panels, I get both definite Kirby vibes and still vibes from Barry Windsor Smith artwork. The blob of red on page five to color the three main characters is some lazy coloring. I wonder if any of those ape men harbor the soul of a 20th century female movie star inside them. Wasn't one of Howard's other creations a large redhead male, maybe from the Celtic myths? I think maybe the ape folks stayed where they were as Conan and Kjord were pushing the war machine because they could not believe that they would be attacked by the slaves. Incredulous into immobility. All right, so let's tackle each one of these topics. The art, yeah, same with me. There's uh, definite Kirby vibes, uh, but you're seeing some of that Barry Windsor Smith poke through, and we get more of that in this issue. Uh, when you, (laughs) the blob of red on page five, I didn't even notice that until you pointed it out. And I went back and looked at it and went, wow, that is bad. It's literally, it's a, it's a panel that takes up most of the page and the three figures in the panel are very small. They take up maybe 5% of the panel. They're very tiny. And most of the panel is colored either black with red and green. And then they literally, it's like they just took a red ink bottle and, squirted out a blob of it on top of those three characters because that's that's how the coloring was done. It does look pretty lazy. The uh the comment about the any of the eight men harboring the soul of a 20th century female movie star. That's a uh that's a DC joke, buddy. None of these are gonna be doing that because this is Marvel Comics, friend. But what Ed is referring to is the ultra humanite who is a a guy, a, a Superman bad guy, the first Superman real bad guy, uh, a character that Ed and I read about in a number of issues going through these old Golden Age Superman comics over at the Superman Super show. that's supermansupershow.com. dot com. and eventually because the 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 ultra humanite has left the comic, we don't see him again at all in the Golden Age. He returns at some point in the Silver Age. but before he goes away in the Golden Age, he has his brain, Put into the body of a female, a famous female movie star, well, famous for the DC universe. And then when he comes back in the Silver Age, that very brain was then placed inside a white gorilla. And that's who the ultra humanite is now. You look at modern DC stories and you look up the ultra humanite, he's a big white gorilla. As far as uh, another of Howard's creations being a large redhead male, I don't know. I tried to find some information out there. I tried to look it up and I, I couldn't find anything. But then again, I get very frustrated very quickly when I'm trying to research stuff and I don't find anything within the first two links that come up in in in, in a Google search. Uh, and then your idea that the reason, because one of the the things I pointed out in the last episode was how Kjord and Conan are pushing this giant battering ram toward the the box seats where the King of the Beastmen is hanging out with his his guards, and they just sit there for what had to have been 15 minutes for Conan and Kjord to get this freaking battering ram moving and then moving fast enough to slam into these box seats. They just sit there and let it happen. And the idea that they were just incredulous, that they could not believe that they would be attacked that way by slaves. Uh, If I was able to hand out no prizes, I would give you a no prize. For that, but I'm still just gonna chalk it up to poor writing. <laughs> but that was my feedback this week, folks. If you if you want to write in, tell me your thoughts, ask me your questions. The email is stevenorelse at gmail.com. That will be in the show notes, so don't bother writing that down. That's all I got for you this week, folks. Uh so thank you, thank you, one and all, for joining me. I'm having a lot of fun doing these episodes. I'm having even more fun reading these books, and I'm looking forward to getting into more of them in the future. Next week, we're going to look at Conan the Barbarian, issue number four, which is Marvel's first adaptation of the Robert E. Howard story, Tower of the Elephant. Now, if you've been listening to the show from the beginning, which, come on, this is only episode seven, so why wouldn't you? The original idea behind this show was I was going to go through and read each one of the Robert E. Howard original short stories, and then find the various comic book adaptations from Marvel or from Dark Horse or from whoever that any of these publishers would have put out adapting these stories, and then just talk about them all and contrast and compare. How do they, how do the, the adaptations compare to the original, which one's the best, and blah, blah, blah. So the next one I had up on my list to do was Tower of the Elephant. So I I had already read this, this particular issue. I read the original story. I read the Dark Horse adaptation and I read the second that's right second Marvel Comics adaptation that happened in a Savage Sword of Conan magazine so while the main bit of next week's episode will be talking about Conan the Barbarian issue number four you're gonna get a lot of the other stuff as well the original story the other two adaptations and, and, and whatnot so yeah come back come back for that keep on coming back Until then, folks, my name is Steven, and this has been Hither Came Conan. Be nice to each other. Hither Came Conan is a Stephen or Else production. Find more podcasts at StephenOrElse.com. Questions and comments can be directed to Stephen or else at gmail.com. Find me online at Twitter, Spoutable, and Instagram by searching for at StephenOrElse and join my newsletter, Stephen Says Stuff, at list.justanotherfanboy.com. This is a free substack where I will send every single podcast episode I host right to your inbox the morning that they are released. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com/slash StevenR Orr, and in return, I'm gonna do my very best to give you and your fellow patrons podcast episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate this show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Feud's did Conan fight, honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. Into the boat!